Well, it is the Sunday traditionally called Easter. Etymology of that word isn't anything you want to be associated with, but we know we mean Resurrection Sunday. Christ rose from the dead. I was just chatting with Marcia this week, I think last night, and uh, trying to calculate. Uh, I believe this is the 47th consecutive year that it has been my privilege to preach on Resurrection Sunday. And I'll never get tired of it. A lot of different ways you can, uh, you can say it. And I'm going to go to one of my favorites. If you follow along in our daily emails, you know I took the week off from our study in Genesis to, to focus on uh, Easter week or what is often called Passion Week. And I want to put a ribbon on that this morning. I want us to take a survey trip through the most important week in history. Now, if you're here um, as a guest because it's Easter, I, I especially welcome you. You're going to see the most important events that ever happened, and uh, unless you are from out of the area, I hope you'll, well, even if you are out of the area, I hope you'll come back again and again and learn with us what Jesus Christ accomplished for us that we are celebrating today. On our regular weeks, we're now studying the book of Acts which records the 30 years following Jesus' resurrection. Maybe that's what got me in the mood to look at that whole week so we can connect it to what we're studying week in and week out. Now, last week on the Lord's Day, we read about how Jesus entered Jerusalem surrounded by a massive crowd, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Son of David is the King, the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which was prophesied to be what Israel would say when the Messiah came. Hosanna in the highest, they cried. It seemed as if everybody had finally recognized Jesus for who he is, because those things are true and they're right. But as glorious as that was, it was not to last. The leaders of the Jews had long ago rejected the teaching of the Scriptures about the Messiah, which were fulfilled by Jesus, and they couldn't stand to see Him adored by the crowds. Even as the great celebration was still unfolding, we're told this little tidbit from Luke 19, 39 and 40. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the multitude came and said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And He answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. He is Lord of all. Well, that was the (coughs) arrival on Sunday. That night, Jesus returned home a couple miles away to the home. He returned to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his Lazarus's dear friends who stayed in lived in Bethany, a little village outside of Jerusalem. And the most important week in human history was thus begun. And we're going to look at several of the highlights. If you recall last week, I was talking about when the, when the tabernacle opened in the wilderness, uh, the priests had to spend seven days in intense preparation to do their task on behalf of the people. Well, this week is God the Son preparing for the ultimate sacrifice. So let's dive in on Monday. Monday, the theme is expose the hypocrites. 
Monday morning, Jesus returned to Jerusalem. The city was absolutely jammed with thousands of people who came for the Passover. That happened in Jerusalem several times a year at the so-called pilgrim feasts. And as you know, the Passover required each household to sacrifice an acceptable lamb. That was in addition to the routine sacrifices. So the temple was a massively busy place. The whole outer court of the temple, known as the court of the Gentiles, became a a place of business during the Passover. Merchants would pay for the right to set up shop to sell animals for the sacrifices, the lambs and for the poorer ones, the, 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 the birds and that. And the animals had to be purchased with Israeli money. So there was another whole industry of merchants who paid for the privilege to be there for the purpose of exchanging money from one currency into another, and of course, adding a little surcharge. Huge profits were made in the temple during Passover week. To do business in the temple area required that you had to have basically a license. You had to have permission from the the governing body of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. Corruption of the purpose of the temple of God was absolutely rampant. And it went right to the top of the spiritual food chain with the high priest and his extended family and all the priests. When Jesus entered the temple that Monday morning, instead of the quiet serenity that it was designed for, it was like entering a noisy, crowded marketplace. The normal smells from the altar of incense and the burning of the sacrifices were buried under the stench of animals penned up in tight spaces. So Jesus gave them a foretaste of the judgment of God that he will ultimately bring on people who would so corrupt the worship that he designed. People talk about Jesus cleansing the temple did it at the beginning of his ministry and here at the end. No, that's not what this was about. He didn't cleanse it. He didn't clean it. They were back the next day in full force and probably with a bad attitude. He was showing them God's opinion of what they were doing. And so we read in in Mark 11, starting in the middle of verse 15, And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den." Now, the chief priests heard that, and of course, they fell to their knees and said, Oh, we have been so wrong. Lord, forgive us. Maybe not. Look at the next verse. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. They should have been afraid of him because he's the judge. They should have fallen in the fear of God. They were afraid of him because he was so popular with the people. They were afraid they were going to lose their influence and their position. And yes, 
their income. So what had been a, a clandestine plot among the Jewish leaders, been working on it for over a year by this time, they were plotting to kill Jesus, but now that wasn't a secret. That became their open obsession. But to pull it off without causing a riot, they were going to need help from an insider who could deliver Jesus to them out of public sight. Cue Judas Iscariot. He would be their dupe. Later on Monday, Jesus in the temple dealt with some Greek visitors to Jerusalem, obviously converts to Judaism. He uh, predicted his death yet again. He did that many times. And again, they slipped out of Jerusalem, walked the two miles over to Bethany, and spent the night at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Then comes Tuesday. Tuesday was an extremely busy day. They were probably all equally busy, but there's so much more is recorded about what happened on Tuesday of that week. And I described the theme of Tuesday, what could have been and will be. Jesus showed up and immediately the leaders of the Jews challenged his authority when he entered the temple. They were probably afraid he was going to wreck the place again. Jesus spoke three parables. He fielded a bunch of questions from the Pharisees and from the party of the Herodians and from the Sadducees and from the scribes. They couldn't trick him. They couldn't catch him. They couldn't stump him. He refuted them all. And he fired back questions of his own which exposed their sin and their hypocrisy and their unbelief. But as I said, I I would pick two highlights from this day. What could have been and what will be. The what could have been is if only the leaders of the Jews hadn't rejected him. Now there in Jerusalem, in public, during the busiest time of the year in the temple, Jesus stood up and pronounced seven woes against the teachers of the law, especially the Pharisees who had the broadest ranging influence on the most people through the synagogue system. So imagine the din of the huge crowd in the court of the Gentiles. Yeah, the merchants and the money changers were back. But I imagine that crowd becoming eerily quiet when Jesus began to speak. I commend to you Matthew chapter 23. You might want to go read that today. But Jesus thundered out seven times... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Wow! Happy Easter to you, too. And then each time, and when he pronounced woe, which means damnation, he explained why he pronounced damnation on them. And the conclusion of that bone-chilling, make-your-skin-crawl message is Jesus' own lament over Jerusalem the very place where he will one day come and reign as the king in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he said. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. 
Oh, I hope their minds flashed back to the day before when he chased out the money changers and the merchants. He says, For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is exactly the phrase the prophets say that they will speak when they turn to him just before his second coming. My friends, don't let this resurrection go by, this resurrection day, I should say, go by without your soul gathered under the wings of the Savior. Now, it's not like Jesus grew feathers when he ascended to the Father. It's a, it's a metaphor, but the idea is the chicks are safe under mom's wings. Uh, he, he wants you to be his for all of eternity. He died so that you can be saved. That was Tuesday during the day. Tuesday concluded with one of the longest discourses of Jesus recorded anywhere in the New Testament. He had, he had explained what could have been, and now he proclaims what will be. As they left the city that day, the, the disciples, who certainly had to have been shaken by what Jesus had said there, they turned and they pointed out the beauty of the temple. And Jesus spoke a spine-tingling prediction to them. It's recorded by Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three of them. He said, Truly I say to you, speaking of the temple, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. His prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70. That majestic temple mount on the top of Mount Moriah completely cleaned off. You won't find a temple there today. Now you unfortunately will find a mosque, but not one stone left upon another where the temple had once stood. So they left Israel to the east toward Bethany, but you cross the little Kidron Valley, a little steep valley there, uh, and they went to the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley and sat down there. And this, the disciples asked a threefold question. They said, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? That is, when are you actually going to come as the king? And what will be the sign or signs of the end of the age when all these things will be fulfilled? And what you have in your Bible in Matthew 24 and 25 is called <laughs> the Olivet Discourse, the discourse delivered on the Mount of Olives. It um, is Jesus' detailed answers to that three-part question. Um, it's one of the great prophetic portions of all of the Bible. Scott Basolo has been taking us through the book of Daniel, the most massive uh, pre-cross description of the things of the end times. It all flows through the Olivet Discourse and then the details unfolded in the, in the book of Revelation. And Jesus explained all of that stuff there. Well, I wish we had time to go do it, but it, it took me 12 or 15 messages to preach my way through it, so we won't do that this morning. And again, Jesus and his men spent the night in Bethany. Now, as you look at our outline, you're going to see that Wednesday didn't even register with a Roman numeral. Apparently, Jesus rested on Wednesday, or at least he stayed out of the public eye, or at least not as much as recorded we have recorded only three things about that day. We're told that the, the, the enemies of Jesus continued to plot his murder. We're told that uh, Jesus explained yet again that he was going to be crucified. 
and we're told that Judas Iscariot slipped away to carve out his deal with the Jewish leaders. He arranged to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a lowly slave. Well, that brings us to Thursday, the day the Lamb of God prepares. We'll skip through the day. There isn't much told to us about that, but Thursday evening was huge. Jesus celebrated the Passover with his men in an upper room that was provided by a friend. And during that meal, he let Judas know that he knew all about his treachery, even though the other guys didn't. He let Peter know that he was going to deny his Lord three times before the cock crowed, before the cock crowed in the early morning. He instituted the Lord's Supper there, replacing Passover with the symbolic meal we call communion. We continue to celebrate, and we will continue to celebrate until we do it with Jesus in His kingdom. Come again next Lord's Day, and we plan to celebrate the Lord's table. After the meal, Jesus spoke many of the greatest promises and some of the finest words of comfort in all of the Bible, comforting his men who were just trying to wrap their heads around that he said he was leaving. That's in John chapters 13 through 16. Then they went out again, out across the Kidron Valley to the foot of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed fervently. And in that peaceful garden, where they often went. That was where Judas had arranged. He'd figured out, surely they'll go to, the, they'll go to Gethsemane on the way back to Bethany after the, after the Passover. In that peaceful place, Judas betrayed Jesus to a mob that was sent by the chief priests and elders. It's one of my favorite incidents in the, in the Bible for the just, I don't know, it just makes me smile when I see it. They, Judas and the, and, the, and the high priest, Mucky Muck, said, arranged to have uh, Roman soldiers, swords, clubs, hundreds come to arrest this one gentle man who had never harmed anybody. And they come and uh, he's, who steps up and says, who do you seek? Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forward and says, I am he, literally ego eimi, I am the Greek version of the name of God from Exodus chapter 3. And at the speaking of that name, it says they all were drawn backward and fell to the ground. Now, when you stumble backward and you fall to the ground, you know where you land. And yes, that's what Jesus did to all of them with two words. He let them know who they were coming to arrest. It was an incredible display of power. He also made a final appeal to Judas there. And he made sure that he protected the 11 disciples who hadn't fallen away. He went himself calmly of his own will, quietly with them. And all through Thursday night and the wee hours of Friday morning, the terrible pre-cross agony of Jesus wore on. He endured every moment of it in obedience to the Father, but he deserved none of it. There was a mockery of a trial that took place during that night. It was actually two trials, one by the Jews and one by the Romans. You see, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, but they didn't have authority to put anybody to death. 
legally under the Romans. So since they lacked the authority to put someone to death, they had to manipulate the Roman authorities to do the actual deed of crucifixion for them. The Jewish trial had three phases, as did the Roman trial. And Jesus was passed around from person to person and place to place with this ridiculous attempt to build a case against him, getting more and more contorted with every turn. By the way, in the notes that I provide with the, uh, in the bulletins, and I provide them uh, online on our website, um, I include a summary of those trials. It's just amazing how contorted it all was. Well, by morning, Jesus clearly had not slept a wink. He had by then been blindfolded, mocked, beaten, spat upon, and scourged. If you're not sure what that means, you can go study it. It's not for polite company to describe that. Before he went to the cross, he was already a bloody mess, hardly recognizable. That takes us to Friday. Jesus died for your sins. Now, you know the custom. They would make the one being crucified carry the huge cross piece, the beam that was the cross piece of the cross, carry it to the place of crucifixion. Jesus was in such a condition, they actually conscripted somebody to carry his cross for him the last bit of the way. But as they got to the place of the cross and As he was nailed to the cross and then it was lifted in position, Jesus cried out for all to hear, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now don't get me wrong, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were very good at crucifixion. He wasn't the first. And the the ones who had manipulated the Romans to do the crucifixion, they knew exactly what they were doing in that sense. But understand, God had a different purpose for His Son going to that cross. They thought they were getting rid of a problem. But Jesus was going to bear the sins of the world. You think about that. Jesus was the only one present who didn't deserve to die. He was praying for the soldiers who did the deed. And it's cool that we have that one indication of one of the soldiers saying, truly, this was the Son of God. He was also praying for the the weak-minded ones who had shouted to Pilate when Pilate asked what he should do with the one that is called the King of the Jews. And remember, they, they screamed out in a mob mentality, crucify Crucify Him. Understand when He said, forgive them, He was also praying for the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders of the people who had all played roles in arranging His murder. And it's not wrong to say, Jesus was praying for you. He went to the cross to die, to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. His will is that you be forgiven. Have you submitted to His will? Have you received His forgiveness, which comes only as a free gift? 
Have you turned from your sins and turned to Jesus Christ by faith? Have you renounced sin as your master and do you proclaim Jesus as your Lord? The offer stands open to everyone who will turn to Him in faith. There is full and complete forgiveness. Well, for six hours, Jesus hung on the cross. In the middle of the day, imagine how eerie this would have been. The sky became dark as the darkness of sin was poured out upon the Son of God on the cross. He said several other things that during that time, all momentous. Great study for Good Friday, the seven things Jesus said from the cross. As he bore your sin and tasted the effects of sin, he cried out just exactly as prophesied in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took our sins, whatever that interruption was in the sweet fellowship between God the Father and God the Son, it was torture for Jesus on the cross. And after the end of the sin-bearing agony, Jesus spoke again, It is finished. He had borne the penalty for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. And as John wrote, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And you've got to understand how amazing that is to speak at all, but to speak with a loud voice for all to hear, considering the devastation of His body. He said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Then He thrust His head forward, and by His own choice, He breathed His last. Jesus did not die until he willed to die. On the radio this week, I, uh, I heard what was supposed to be a wonderful, pithy quote about the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus in light of Easter week. And what I heard the person say was, He paid our obligation to sin, the law, and the devil. Now, please understand, that is exactly not anything that Jesus did. He paid our obligation. He paid our obligation to God. See, the problem is God is our creator, and He is our, and he is our judge, and, and He is perfectly holy, and in our sin, we are alienated from Him. We've got to bridge that gap, and we can't. So He did with His Son, I have no idea what that's supposed to mean, but trust me, you have no obligation to pay to sin, except to hate it, run from it, turn from it, repent from it. The law, you don't have an obligation to the law. We're not under the law. The law was given to Israel by God to show the need of a Savior. Well, I guess you could say you're obligated to the law. You have to keep it 100% perfectly every millisecond of your life or you're condemned to the lake of fire forever. But Jesus didn't come to pay an obligation to the law. And I have no idea what they had on their mind when they said He paid an obligation to the devil. 
He defeated the devil at the cross. It was God who sent his son to the cross to be the propitiation for our sin. Isaiah chapter 53 is a marvelous prophecy of what Israel, when they come to faith before the second coming, is going to say looking back on Jesus. And Psalm 53, I say, one of those Old Testament books, (laughs) Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, But Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Jesus did not die until he knew, he who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. As the Christmas carol says, he was born to die that man might live. Jesus took the penalty for every sin you've ever committed and every sin you ever will commit. He took it upon himself. The innocent one voluntarily became the substitute for you and me, the guilty ones. So Jesus breathed his last Now, there was some urgency to get the three men off the crosses before sundown and the beginning of the Sabbath. So, to hasten their deaths, the soldiers came, came by each cross and did a kind of a twistedly merciful thing. They broke the legs of the other two on the cross. Why is that merciful? Because death on a cross was slow and tremendously agonizing. And it didn't come from blood loss. It came from asphyxiation. when You can't breathe anymore. And so breaking the legs made it impossible for them to press down on that spike that was driven through their ankles to lift themselves up so that their diaphragm could draw one more painful death. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So Exactly as the Old Testament predicts, no bones were broken. Instead, a spear was thrust into his side, verifying that he actually was dead. And then two men stepped up. Joseph, a man from Arimathea, and Nicodemus, who was the guy Jesus met with early in his ministry. They had both been part of kind of a band of secret believers in Jesus among the spiritual leaders of the Jews. And probably they thought, we can, we can turn this thing around and get them to come to the Savior, but uh, well, it never worked. But that day they count, came out of their spiritual closets and did their job. They went and asked for and received permission to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. They hastily prepared it as best they could, according to the customs of the Jews, and they laid the body in the tomb of Joseph from Arimathea, which was a tomb tomb hewn from solid rock with a huge stone to cover the entrance. You've probably seen pictures of uh, places like that, and there have been several found in the the first century. There's one uh, in uh, the outskirts of Jerusalem, the the so-called garden tomb. It's it's a beautiful, moving place to go. It's almost certainly not the tomb where Jesus was laid, but the kind of tomb carved out of solid rock with this giant flat stone that would cover the entrance. That's where they put the body. Night fell. The Savior was dead. Only the most wicked were pleased with that. 
There were some calloused souls who surely were unaffected. The disciples were crushed, scattered, full of fear. Somewhere along the line there, Judas committed suicide. There were a few faithful women who had followed all the way to the tomb, and they had vowed that they would prepare the spices for a proper Jewish burial, and they would return after the Sabbath to deal with the body of Jesus with the proper respect that they knew he deserved. I'm sure they wept through that night. The mother of Jesus was among them. Can you imagine the torture of her soul? Well, Saturday also doesn't rate a Roman numeral in our list of days of that week. The body of Jesus lay in the tomb. The chief priests and the Pharisees broke their own Sabbath rules. You see, their rules were very important for them to enforce on everybody else, but if they wanted to kill somebody, it didn't matter. They broke their own Sabbath rules and arranged a meeting with Pontius Pilate so they could plead with him to provide soldiers to guard the tomb because they knew that Jesus had predicted his resurrection and they didn't want anybody to get away with faking that he rose from the dead. Well, Pilate granted their request. The tomb was sealed and a cadre of Roman soldiers guarded it. And now we're ready for Sunday. The theme, complete vindication. You know, somebody could theoretically... Make it look like they appear they know when they're, going to be di- when they're going to die. It would be hard, but you could do it. Uh, a soldier could arrange to run into a very dangerous situation and get himself killed. People sometimes commit suicide by policemen. You just go grab your gun and start firing at policemen. You're going to have a short lifespan after that. Um, a, a suicide bomber can tell you when and where he's going to die. But Jesus said when he was going to die, where he was going to die, how he was going to die... And his was completely different. He predicted he would go to Jerusalem. He predicted who would betray him. He predicted his arrest. He predicted his trial. He predicted the scourging. Everything. You can't do that unless you're God. And even though he knew there was a murder plot, he was in control of the whole thing. Um, how he, uh, How could he have known even if it was going to be in Jerusalem, that he wasn't going to be assassinated in an ambush on the way from Bethany to Jerusalem one of those evenings or or mornings. He knew it all exactly. But even if you want to speculate that all of those details were lucky guesses on the part of Jesus, you can't get past the resurrection. I could manipulate circumstances to determine the time of my own death, but Jesus also predicted he would rise from the dead when he would do it, and he did it. Complete vindication of everything Jesus claimed is wrapped up in his resurrection. I want to let the powerful word of God speak for itself. I commend to you, go ahead and read toward the end of all four of the Gospels, and you'll hear the accounts of... of, uh, the morning when they discovered that Jesus had risen. And you know, uh, there is no record in the Bible of Jesus' resurrection. There's no record of the moment that he rose. We're not told how. We're, we don't, we're not told as anything unfolded. Only when the tomb was empty, we're told 
how many people witnessed what had happened. So look at Matthew chapter 28, first 10 verses. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now that is one specific targeted earthquake. Didn't destroy anything in Jerusalem, but it flipped that gigantic, uh, very heavy stone like a, like a tiddlywink away from the door of the tomb and the angel sat on it. Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what is at stake in your response to Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection? It's nothing less than the difference between wonderful fellowship in eternity with God in the new heaven and new earth versus an eternity of torment in the lake of fire. This is not a fable. There were no bunnies in that garden. It's not about colored eggs or plastic eggs full of candy. It's, this is not a myth. This is not just a holiday This is history. As a matter of fact, it's the pinnacle of history. I can tell you, I'm here doing what I am doing for the 47th time, full of joy for one reason. Jesus rose from the dead. I promise you, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't waste a nice day like this without being on a golf course. But this isn't a waste. This is infinitely better. Forever, an empty tomb testifies to the, to the truth of the gospel. There is no greater joy than to know the risen Jesus Christ and to be able to share the gospel. Good on you for being here. This is, this and all the places like it, is the place to be to celebrate the resurrection. Why, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ has begun meeting on Sunday because of the resurrection. It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. It's all about the resurrection. What will you do about it? If you walk away without having turned from your sins to follow this risen Savior, 
Well, you might as well grab the hammer out of the hands of that soldier and strike another blow to drive the nails into his hands. You might as well add your blows to the scourging that he took because you will grieve God if you can walk away from a celebration of the resurrection and not be putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and following Him. As we've been studying in the book of Acts, remember it, it opens up right on the day that Jesus uh, ascends to the Father. And remember a few days later, He sent the Holy Spirit. And then after those amazing phenomena were manifested, Peter preached. Remember this from Acts 2, 22 through 24. What do we do when we have a risen Savior who's ascended to the Father? Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize this is the eternal plan. The only way they can be forgiven is that I go to that cross. The resurrection was the complete vindication of it all. And then look a little further down, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39 Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. The Holy Spirit had come, and the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, just like He convicts our hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment. So they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. Turn. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. We're in that verse. We are those who are far off. 21 centuries far off. Different culture, far off. Different language, far off. Different, different continent, far off. But God calls people to Himself. And that's what we are celebrating today. And let's pray. Our Father, thank You for sending Your Son. Thank You for His perfect obedience to Your plan to redeem every soul that will accept your gift of eternal life in our Savior, Christ Jesus. We rejoice over His resurrection. Please draw our hearts today to ever greater love for Him. Please draw those who don't yet have eternal life to yourself today. We pray as Jesus recommended. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.